Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. the center, it was white because it represented Jesus Christ. Not only his own purity, but that his blood had washed our sins and made us white as snow. And so these four candles mean something in particular. The first one is the candle of hope. And it's in that first Sunday that we reiterate all the Old Testament prophecies and the hope of his appearing. And the second candle is love. It's called the Bethlehem candle. And it is about the place where he was born and the gift of God's love. The third candle was pink, and it's the candle of joy. It's called the shepherd's candle. As the angels appear and say, glad tidings of good joy, he's about to come. And the fourth candle, again, was the royal color purple. And it is the peace candle, or it is the angel's candle. And they come and announce glad tidings, great joy, because there is born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior. And then on the fifth Sunday, or usually the Christmas Eve service, you would light the white candle. And so this first Sunday at Advent is for a purpose. It allows us to free our hearts from the cares and the anxieties of life so that we can refocus on the real meaning of this season, on the purpose of Christmas. We celebrate his first coming that he brings us hope and love and joy and grace. And we prepare our hearts in anticipation for that coming that is yet to appear, his second appearing. And so this Sunday gives us a time to prepare our hearts, to reflect, to remember, to repent, to do whatever is needed to clear our heart and our mind of every hindering influence so that we can focus in on the true meaning of this season, celebrate it with rejoicing, and look in hope and anticipation for the coming of the Lord the second time. So I want to read some scriptures to you from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 22. Uh, It's only on the King James Version on the screen, but I'm going to read it several times. He also that received the seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. The thorny ground represents those who hear and accept the good news, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares of this life and the lure of wealth so that no crop is produced. The seed cast in the weeds is a person who hears the kingdom news, but weeds of worry and illusions about getting more and wanting everything under the sun strangle what was heard, and nothing comes of it. And the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. That's Mark chapter 4. The seed cast in the weed represents the one who hears the kingdom news, but are overwhelmed with worries about all the things they have to do and all the things they want to get. The stress strangles what they heard and nothing comes of it. And the seed that fell in the weeds, well, these are the ones who hear, but then the seed is crowded out and nothing comes of it as they go about their lives worrying about tomorrow, making money, 
and having fun. And then in Luke chapter 21 and verse 34 and 36, Jesus says, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day comes upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. The message says this. Be on your guard. Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dull by parties and drinking and shopping. Otherwise, that day is going to take you by complete surprise. Spring on you suddenly like a trap, for it's going to come on everyone, everywhere, at once. So whatever you do, don't go to sleep at the switch. Pray constantly that you'll have the strength and the wits to make it through everything that's coming and end up on your feet before the Son of Man. I want to talk to you this morning about romping in the wrappings. Romping in the wrappings. It's kind of like one of the best stories I've ever heard about Christmas. It's that really particular lady who is wrapped up in all the stress of the Christmas season. I mean, there's decorations to hang, and they have to be perfect. There's Christmas cantatas and songs to learn, play parts to memorize. There's food to cook and presents to buy. And you have to find that particular present for each person on your list. And it has to be just right. There's cards to be sent. The list is long. And so she's busy, wrapped up in the trappings of the seasons. Everything has to be done. It has to be done perfectly. It has to be done correctly. Or she cannot enjoy the Christmas season. And it's getting close. And so she's all wrapped up in that stress when all of a sudden she notices one day that one page of her Christmas list has fallen off of her desk and down by her chair. She hastily picks it up and discovers that there's 49 names on that list. And so in the stress of the season, she rushes to Walmart or to Hallmark because you got to care enough to give the very best. And she found this beautiful box of 50 Christmas cards with a beautiful scene on the front of it. She rushes home, quickly signs them, addresses the envelopes, stamps them, and puts them in the mail. And now all the rest of the busyness takes over her time. Plays and parties and songs and everything to get ready. And finally, it's Christmas Eve. And she's gone to the Christmas Eve service. And now that service has ended and her part is fulfilled. And she returns home finally with just a few minutes to relax. And she gets a cup of coffee and she sits in that favorite chair. And all of a sudden she remembers those 49 Christmas cards. And there's one left in the box. And she looked at it and thought, I have really good taste. And she picked that card up just admiring the beauty of the scene. And then she decided she'd read what the card said on the inside. And the card said, this card just comes to say, a little Christmas gift is on its way. Merry Christmas. And all of a sudden, it dawns on her. There are 49 people out there waiting for a Christmas gift that's never going to arrive. And you see, that's the way we are. We get so caught up in the wrappings, in the trappings, that we miss the true meaning and the true gift of this season. 
it, it's like kids. I mean, they have to have that one particular toy. I mean, it's been advertised so much. It's been droned and in, driven into their mind and their spirit. And, and, and there's even movies about finding the right toy, you know. And, and you go to the shopping mall and you fight the Black Friday crowds and, and, and ultimately you grab that gift that they just have to have and you bring it home and you wrap it just perfectly and you hide it away and the great anticipation of Christmas morning comes and the gift is unwrapped and the kid begins to shout, I've got it, I've got it, wow. Uh, there's even videos on, videos on Facebook about them crying. They're overwhelmed. You got them the gift. And then about an hour later, the newness wears off. And you go back in the front room and that special perfect gift that you fought the lines for, that you wrapped perfectly, that they just had to have, that gift is cast over in the corner because the new has worn off and they're romping in the wrappings. They're playing with the boxes and the paper. And that is exactly what happens to us. We get so caught up in the trappings of this season that we miss the true gift of what the Lord is trying to tell us. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell us, that we have to be on guard, lest at any time our hearts get overcharged, that the seed can fall among weeds. And though it begins to grow, it is overwhelmed by the cares of the immediacy of this life by the deceitfulness of riches, by all the other trappings until we don't produce anything. In other words, we get involved in trivial pursuit. We get to a place where we major in minors. We, we, uh, we get so involved with the scaffolding that we miss what the building is all about. In fact, do you remember what the Taj Mahal is really about? Do you, do you remember what that building was built for? It's a tomb. It was built to house the remains of the queen. And now after all these years, it, it, it's no longer a tomb. It's a marvel of architectural ability. Uh, the, the remains of the queen are long gone and the building is empty. And they've totally forgotten what the meaning was really about because that's the way we are. We get so caught up in the creed and the code that we miss the cross. We're, we're like the, 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 the soldiers at the cross. We get so wrapped up in dividing the clothing and having that seamless robe that we miss the Redeemer. We uh, major in minors. We get so wrapped up in that meager manger that we miss the mystery of the incarnation. In the bright lights of the season that we miss the light of the world. We, we, we get so involved in our search and our desire for peace that we miss the Prince of Peace. He alone is the source of peace. We get so caught up in the stress of cards and carols and cantata music that we miss the serenity of salvation. We get so caught up with Santa Claus that we miss the Savior. We get all wrapped up in the wonder of the season and we miss the wonder of God that he was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself. We get so wrapped up in the gifts of the wise men that we miss the gift of eternal life. And we see that so clearly in that first Christmas season. 
Uh, Paul says it like this. He said, you know, we are compassed about with a great crowd of witnesses. And therefore, we need to lay aside the weight. Those heavy baggages that so encumber us and entangle us and prep us up that we fall. Not just the sin, but the weight that does so easily beset us and enthrong us and entangle us. And if we're not careful, the weights and the distraction of the season will keep us from running the race with patience. He goes on to say that the way to avoid this is we have to look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We have to consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself, lest we also become weary and faint in our mind. And so he said, this is the moment we need to understand. You have to lay aside the weight so that you can see clearly the reality of this season. And that's what this first Sunday is all about. And we see that happen in the first Christmas. Do you remember how they were caught up and encumbered with so many other things that they missed Jesus? They were caught up with that secular mindset. That's the innkeeper. I mean, it's tax time. Times are hard. People have to be fed. It's a small village called Bethlehem. It would be less than a suburb of Jerusalem. And now it's enthronged and filled with people coming to pay their tax for the whole world is under taxation. Well, the innkeeper has to make a profit. And so every room is rented out, even that limestone cave and manger. And the secular mindset is the, it's the economy. It's the business. That's what it's all about. It's, it's starting on Thursday and going through Black Friday, and now it will turn into Internet Monday. And $22 billion will be spent Monday alone on the trappings of this season. And they're all caught up in that. It's not that they're hostile to Jesus. It's not that they're unsympathetic. I mean, the innkeeper's not unsympathetic to Mary and her plight. I mean, he he has a little compassion in his heart. Uh, uh, No no Jewish woman ever birthed a son by herself. There was always a, a midwife, and she has no midwife, just this husband that doesn't know what's going on. And, and, and it's not that he's unsympathetic or uncaring. He's just so overwhelmed with the busyness of the season, with, the, with trying to make money, with trying to make ends meet, that before you know it, there is no room in the end for Jesus. That mindset has crowded everything else out. And if you're not careful, you'll get so caught up in this season in the mindset of buying and giving and the trappings, it's not that you're hostile to Jesus. It's just there's no room for him. Well, amen. And then it was not only that way with the secular mindset. It's with Herod. And there you have that state mindset. This is the political position of power. This is the man that's saying, there's not going to be any king but me. No one's going to take my place. No one's going to take my possession. No one's going to rule my life. No one's going to tell me what I can and I cannot do. Amen. And so now there's not just indifference, but there's actual hostility and antagonism. And, And if he's trying to take my place, then I'll kill him. I'll destroy him before I'll let anyone be king but me. And if we're not careful, we can get so wrapped up in determining our own faith and living our own lives that we determine we want no one else, not even Jesus. 
and we get romping in the rapids. It's kind of like the story they told of a huge cathedral in Europe has the greatest pipe organ in the world and the sexton or the man that takes care of the church is there on a Saturday afternoon and a stranger walks in. And he said, sir, I, I, I understand you have the greatest pipe organ in Europe and I want to see it. And he said, well, we're about to close, but you, you can see it, but you don't touch it. And a man walks up and, and is admiring this beautiful pipe organ. And he said, would, would you mind if I sit on the bench? And, and the man said, you can't sit on the bench. Only the organist can sit on the bench. He said, oh, sir, but I've traveled a long way. And not only to see it, but if I could just say, he said, okay, you can sit there, but you have to be careful because if the organist comes in, I'm going to get in trouble. And the man quickly sits at the bench and he reaches his fingers out and he says, oh, oh, you can't. He said, can't, can't I play just a few notes? Can I just, he said, no one plays that, but the organist said, just let me play a few notes. And, and the guy looks around and he says, okay, you can play a note or two. And all of a sudden, this man begins to play running his hands up and down over the keys. The most beautiful, magnificent music you've ever heard fills the cathedral. And the sexton stops the man and says, uh, this is amazing. Who are you? And the man said, my name is Mendelssohn, Felix Mendelssohn. And the sexton said, oh, I almost kept the master from playing magnificent music in my temple and if you're not careful you allow the mindset of the busyness of the season the, the quest for determining your own life to cause you to miss Jesus and then there was that spiritual mindset oh you remember when the wise men came they wanted to know where Jesus had been born and what did Herod do he gathered the religious people the scribes and the chief priests and they could tell him exactly what the scripture said. They quoted the scripture from Micah. Oh, Bethlehem of Judea, you're not the least. They knew all the scripture. They knew all the prophecy. They knew about his appearing. They were spiritual leaders. And yet they're so wrapped up in the ritual that they miss the reality. They're so wrapped up in prophecy on paper that they miss the word coming in flesh. They're romping in the wrappings. They have shadows but no substance. They have ritual but no relationship. They're so wrapped up in the season that they miss the Savior. And not only is that true, Jesus says, about his first appearing, but he says it's true about the second appearing, that you have to be constantly on guard or your heart will become overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And the, and the second appearing of the Christ will come so suddenly like a trap or a snare on all them that are on the face of the earth that you'll miss it. In other words, he said, you can get so wrapped up in romping in the wrappings that you see the bait on the trap. You don't see the jaw, jaws or the snare and you reach out to touch the bait and the jaws snap and you're entrapped and you're entangled and your heart becomes so weighted down with the immediacy of the moment that you miss out on the spiritual. Yeah, the only way I can describe this word overcharged is a description. You know, unique thing about moms, moms always know when you're coming home. Now, I don't know how they know that, but they just do. And when you get there, they have fixed everything for dinner that you like. There's fried chicken and mashed potatoes and gravy and sweet corn, cream sweet corn. 
and, 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 and there's all kinds of hot yeast rolls that mama's made. I mean, the table's laden with every good thing that you want. But you know in the back of your mind, back there in the oven, hidden away somewhere, is a fresh-made cherry pie or a whole pan of fresh homemade cinnamon roll. And so you eat a little bit of everything. No, you eat a lot. And you save just enough room for that piece of pie and that one cinnamon roll. And when you have consumed that, you are what we call in Oklahoma, plum full. Have you ever been plum full? The moment you get plum full, there comes this feeling over you. And all you want to do after you're plum full is find the recliner, the lazy boy, the couch, that favorite part of the carpet, and you just lay out. That's overcharged. You become so weighted and burdened with the immediate that you become lethargic and apathetic. And your heart is so weighted down with the immediacy that you miss his appearing. One translation puts it like this. Be on your guard. Be careful. Lest your heart become so overoccupied with the problems of this life like the rest of the world that you become weighted with the giddiness and the nausea becoming habitually intoxicated by the cares and the distractions of life. Then your spiritual senses will be impaired. You will be lightheaded. You can't think straight, speak straight, or walk straight. And you'll become so ensnared and entangled by other things that you will stagger away from your relationship with Jesus. In other words, he said, it's not only happened at his first appearing, but if you're not careful, it can keep you unprepared for his second appearing. You can get so wrapped up in the trappings, so romping in the wrappings, that his coming happens and you miss it. Now, we know that's true because all we have to do is go back to what Jesus said were the signs of his appearing. You remember what he said? There would be natural calamities, earthquakes, famine, pestilence, and diseases in diverse places. There would be not only natural calamities, there would be social calamities, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Ethnos against ethnos, racial upheavals, wars and rumors. Sounds like the newspaper. And then he said there'd be spiritual calamities, false Christ, false teachers, false prophets that would deceive many. And because iniquity abounds, the love of many would wax cold. There would be nothing left of their love but a heap of ashes. Evil men and deceivers would wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And he said, if you're not careful, your heart will become so weighted with the immediate that that day will be like a snare. And you reach out for those things that are not wrong, but entangle and ensnare. And before you know it, your heart and your spiritual senses are dulled, and he will appear, and you won't be ready. Now, did he know what he was talking about? Well, what else did he say were the signs of his second appearing? He not only mentioned those things that, I, that I've just rehearsed to you, but he said, as it was in the days of Noah, and as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it also be when the Son of Man comes again. Well, now immediately to understand that, you go, have to go back to Genesis 6. And you have to study what were the days of Noah. Well, the Bible said, all the earth was filled with violence. Duh. All flesh had corrupted, corrupted itself on the face of the earth. 
every imagination of men's hearts were only evil continually. Kind of sounds like today. And yet in the midst of that, what was God doing? The Bible says Enoch was prophesying. He was saying 10,000 saints will come. God's going to bring judgment upon all the ungodly for all the ungodly works that they do. And he's coming with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment. But they're so caught up that they're not ready. And not only was Enoch prophesying, the Bible said the Holy Spirit was striving with men. And Noah was building an ark to the saving of his family and preaching righteousness. All the 120 years he was preparing that vehicle, he was preaching to them the truth, exposing them to the fact that judgment was coming. You know what they did? They ignored him. Stupid Galver building an ark to float on water and talking about rain. It's never rained. What do we know about rain? And so they're so involved that they ignore him. When he talks about it was like that in the days of Lot, well, there he's talking, first of all, certainly about perversion. Because perversion is the deviation from the original. When you deviate from God's original plan, it is perverted and it's wrong and it's a sin. But that's not what he majored on. When he describes the days of Noah and Lot, you know what he talked about? They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They were buying, they were selling, they were building, they were planning. Now, wait. None of those are sin. It's life. What is life? Eat, drink, marry, buy, sell, plant, build. It, he said people get so involved with life. They get so overwhelmed with the immediacy and the material and the natural that they forget the spiritual. And all of a sudden the judgment comes. It's like a snare, a trap that snaps, and they're reaching out for life. They're reaching out for the immediacy. They're reaching out for the material. They're overwhelmed with the spirit of the season and the busyness, and we, and we are ensnared. And the day comes, and the door on the ark is shut, and the angels appear, and the fire falls, and they're all taken away. And he said, that's the way it's going to be again. That you can get so wrapped up in the immediacy of the moment that you miss out on the coming of the Lord. And not only did he say that about the first Christmas and about a second appearing, he's talking about your relationship. Because what Jesus said was the gospel is like seed. And it is sowed on different grounds. And some fell among thorns and it sprang up. But it never produced any fruit. Because with it, there came the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches and wanting and getting more. And people, even though they had heard the word and even though they had responded to the truth of God's word, they get so caught up in the immediate, in the wrappings, that the relationship is hindered. And we know that to be true. In the Old Testament, Esau. He was hungry, and he wanted a bowl of red beans. And he's so consumed with the immediate satisfying of his appetite that he sells his spiritual birthright and his blessing for a bowl of red beans. Just romping in the wrappings. In the New Testament, you remember Martha is busy working in the kitchen and serving, 
and, and she's trying to make all this food to satisfy the needs of everyone that's with Jesus. And Mary is sitting, listening to his word. And Martha comes in like we do, overwhelmed by the stress and the pressures of the immediate and the now. And she says, Jesus, tell her to get up and help me. And Jesus says, Martha, you're weighted and encumbered about a lot of things. But don't you know who I am? I'm not your guest. I don't, I don't need a feast. I'm your friend. Only one pan of food is necessary. And you're so weighted with that that you don't understand that Mary has chosen the essential thing. She's sitting at my feet, listening to the word, worshiping me. It's not work, but it's word and worship. And she's chosen the good part. And you missed it because you're encumbered by so much. And isn't that what happens in our relationship in a time like this? If we're not careful, we get so wrapped up in the wrappings that we miss the truth. You know, you know what those wrappings are, and I'm going to stop. You know what they are? Places. We, we, get, we get so overwhelmed with places of comfort. And, and we get apathetic in that place. We're, we're like Abraham. <laughs> don't, don't you remember he's supposed to leave the earth, the Chaldees, the place of idolatry, go into Canaan, the land that God's going to, he's supposed to go alone. And he disobeys by taking people with him. And they make it halfway, 500 miles. You know what mediocrity is? Halfway up the mountain. And he made it to Haran. And Haran is the place of, of halting and delay. His dream's about to die. His destiny is about to be destroyed. Why? Because he's caught up in the place. You know why he stopped at Haran? Because it's a sister city to Ur. It's exactly like Ur. And now he's comfortable. And he's comfortable until his father passes away and God stirs up his nest and moves him on. If you're not careful, you get in this place of comfort, lethargy, apathy in your relationship with the Lord. I'm satisfied. I mean, it's like Elijah. Famine is on. People are dying. There's no water. There's no food. And the Lord sends him out in the desert and sets him down by a brook. And the wonderful thing about the brook is there's water in famine and God sends ravens with bread to feed him. Would you want to leave? He doesn't either. And so what does God do? He dries up the brook. And our problem is God's dried up our brook in order to move us on to our destiny, move us on in a deeper relationship. And we're still sitting by the brook saying it was a good old brook. I remember when water used to come down this brook. I remember when ravens used to break, but there hadn't been any water and bread for 50 years, and we're still sitting by the brook. No, see, we can get so overwhelmed with places. God's trying to stir up your nest to get you out of your apathy and your lethargy to move you on toward the destiny. He'll stir up your nest. That was a problem with Lot. You know what Sodom and Gomorrah is? Comfort. He's been a nomad. And, and now he's in this place of comfort. I mean, he was an, a man of influence. He sat at the gate. He's part of the city government. He not only pitched his tent toward the city, he moved in with his family. And now when the judgment comes, what's happened? He's comfortable. But he loses his influence. They say, who are you to judge us? And he loses his testimony because his own son-in-law says he's a foolish man. And he loses 
not only his two sons-in-law, but he loses his wife because she's so comfortable in Sodom and Gomorrah, she can't turn away from it. And he not only loses his testimony in his wife, he loses his children. Because don't you remember the end of the story? He wouldn't go where God told him to go. He went to a cave. And the daughters said, there's no men out here. And so they get him drunk and have an incestuous relationship and bear two sons, Moab and Amnon, who become the enemies of Israel. Where did they learn that? In the comfortable place. In culture. And we can get so over-involved. And if it's not the place, we get so over-involved with passions that we miss the personal relationship with Jesus. Isn't that what happened to David? I mean, what's wrong with this guy? He becomes so intoxicated and weighted down with the passion, the beauty of Bathsheba, that the man after God's own heart is willing to trade his passionate relationship with the Lord for passion with her. Cost him everything. Sword never leaves his hand. Breaks his relationship. And if it's not passion and the pleasures of sin, which are but its possessions. Isn't that what Solomon said? I've been to the banqueting house and his banner over me is love. His left hand is under my head. His right hand doth embrace me. I'm in this wonderful relationship with the Lord. But then he said, I decided I would seek for wisdom. And I sought wisdom and it was a much weariness of the flesh. And I I, I sought wine and I sought uh, uh, women and I sought material things. The Bible said he made silver like stones in Jerusalem. He sought in all these things. And when he comes to the end of that search, do you remember what he says in Ecclesiastes? It's vanity of vanity and vexation of spirits. It's empty and hollow and it means absolutely nothing. And you can get so caught up rolling into wrappings of places and passions and possessions. And if you're not careful, people, I just got to have that person. That's what Samson said. I got to have Delilah, nobody else will know. I know she's a Philistine, a Canaanite, we're supposed to be destroyed, but I just got to have her. And he's so wrapped up in the person that he misses the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us, that it didn't just happen at his first coming, and it can happen at his second, but if you're not careful right now, right now, you can get so wrapped up in the trivial. You can so major in the minors. You can get so wrapped up in the trappings and the wrappings of Christmas that you miss it totally. And that you miss out on your relationship with God. The weeds choke and there's no fruit. Nothing ever comes of it. Now there's a remedy. And that's what this first Advent is, the Sunday of Advent is about. It is a time to refocus. And you know what that word means? Refocus means that you look away from one thing. To clear your vision so that you can look back and focus in on something else. And what did Paul say? Lay aside the sin but the weight that entangles us and trips us up and besets us and weights us down and encumbers us and ensnares us. Lay aside those weights and what? Look 
to Jesus. And so the purpose of this first Sunday is for you to refocus on the Redeemer. He's the reason for the season. He's what it's all about. It's not about tinsel and cards and carols and, and the stress of buying and gifts. And It's about Jesus. It's about God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world unto himself. That he offered up one sacrifice for sins forever. For the cradle and the crib always moves you to the cross. And out of the cross comes the crown because he's king. And you need to turn your vision upon Jesus and see him as he really is. He is the author and finisher, the originator and the completer of faith. But it means more than that. He is the author and finisher of your faith. He not only started it, he's not only going to complete it, but if you will allow him in this season and in all of your life, he'll write all the chapters in between. He'll complete the book just like he wants it to be. But you have to refocus on Jesus, the Redeemer. And secondly, you have to refocus on your relationship. You know what he says to the church in Revelation chapter 2 to Ephesus? He said, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Now wait. He didn't say that you walked away from it or that you lost it. He just said, you don't love me first. The Bible says we're to love God totally, completely, first. Mind, heart, soul, strength, completely. You're to love God first. And he said, the problem is not that you don't love me, but you don't love me first. You've got all these other things between me and you. And they're choking your relationship out so that you're not producing fruit. Or he was saying, you don't love me best. Or he was saying, you don't love me like you did at first because you've allowed these other things to come in. And so we not only refocus on the Redeemer, but he said during this season, we're to refocus on our relationship. Well, Brother Bob, how can I do that? Well, he tells you in Revelation 2. Remember. Remember from what you've fallen. Do you remember? Solomon described it like this. He said, I've been to the banqueting house. Banner over me is love. Left hands under my head. Right hand in brain. I'm in this wonderful. Do you remember when he first saved you? Do you remember when you came with condemnation and guilt, expecting the judgment of God, and instead, as they sang, you got grace that was unending and unrelenting, and grace that was forgiving, and instead of being judged, you were saved and justified and washed and adopted and, and you became the sons and the daughters of God and heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And it was joy unspeakable. And it was love that was shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. It was peace that passed. Anybody remember when he saved you? Some of you need to tell your face you don't look real saved this morning. He says, I, I want you to re remember when he sanctified you. Remember when he baptized you with the Holy Ghost and fire? Remember he healed you, answered your prayers, met your needs? He said, what you need to do 
this first Sunday is refocus on the Redeemer and then refocus on your relationship and remember your first love and then repent. Admit that I don't love him like I did at the first and I don't love him with the passion that I had at the first and I don't, a lot of times, I don't love him first and I admit that, I repent and then you redo those first works. Whatever is clouding your vision, whatever is ensnaring you, whatever is encumbering you, whatever wrapping you're romping in, lay it aside and come back to the Redeemer and come back to your first love. Amen. And that's why we're here in spite of the cold and the ice. Come because we're entering a season, the anticipation, the joy, the celebration of our Savior's birth who brings eternal life. But we're entering a season to reflect, to repent, to remember, to redo everything in our relationship because our Redeemer didn't just come the first time. He's coming again. And we want to be prepared for His appearing. I want you to stand with me right now. And so, I've told the story before, you've heard it, but it expresses my point. Is a man and wife had been married about 25, 30 years. Uh, you know, excitement of being first married and then kids and doing their own business and raising the family and They'd been all encumbered with life. Kind of grown stale in their relationship and so wrapped up in each of their busyness. Not much time. And Finally, one day the husband just turned to the wife and said, I, I, I tell you what we're going to do. Just throw some clothes in a suitcase. Throw them in the car. We're, gonna, we're just going to leave everything. All the pressure, all the responsibility. We're just going to get away and be together. So they packed the suitcase, threw it in the car, started down the road. Well, as they're going down the road, the wife begins to look around and reminisce. And she says, honey, I think this is the road we came down on our honeymoon. And you know us guys, he thought, oh, you know, out from under the pressure, feeling a little romantic. Nah, nah, it's, he's, I believe it is, hon. And I believe as we go down this road, if this is the right road, we'll come up to the top of the hill. There'll be a little dirt road to the left. And if you turn down that road, it will lead you to the little cottage where we spent our honeymoon. Sure enough, top of the hill, dirt road, turn. There's the cottage where they'd spent their honeymoon 30 years before. And so they're reminiscing. She said, oh, hon, you remember that night we came down this road? We just got married. We just committed ourselves to one another. We just exchanged vows. Said I was sitting all close to you. You had your arm around me, patting me on the leg. You whispered in my ear how much you love me. And, and she just kept going on and on. And she said, now, just look at us. 25 years, 30 years. And I, over here by the door, you're in the driver's seat. And you don't hold me anymore. And he took about as long as he could. And he said, honey, I just want to remind you of one thing. I'm still in the driver's seat. You're the one that moved over. Man, guys, you missed that. That was a really good place to say amen. <laughs> and you know what the Lord's saying in this season? You refocus on the Redeemer.
you refocus on your relationship. I'm still the light and the bread. I'm still the truth and the way and the life. I'm true, stilly, the gift from heaven. I haven't changed. You're the one that's moved. And the first thing you need to do to prepare your hearts, not only to celebrate his birth, but to be ready for his second coming. So that your relationship will not be crowded out by the wrappings and produce no fruit. So you need to scoot over. You need to remember and repent and redo. Scoot back across the seat into that embrace because his right hand doth embrace me and his left hand is under my head and his banner over me is great love. So right now, where you stand, are you reflecting on the Redeemer? Do you see Jesus? Not gifts and lights and tinsels and snowmen and Santa Clauses. Not presents that you want. Not songs that you sing. But Jesus, the Redeemer. And as you reflect on Him, do you remember your first love? That you loved Him first. You loved Him best. You loved Him before anything else and your heart was filled with passion for Him. Repent. Move back across the sea. Because His grace is unfailing and unrelenting and He's waiting to embrace you again. Father, we thank You this morning for Your presence. There may be someone here that has never really embraced You as their Lord and their Savior. They've heard about you. They've heard the story. They've seen the manger. They've heard the angels cry, glad tidings of great joy. Born unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior. They've heard about shepherds and wise men, but they've been so wrapped up in their own passions that they've never really received you. And so right where you're standing, if you need to focus on Jesus, if you need to embrace the Master as your personal Lord and Savior, would you? we won't embarrass you. We just want to pray with you. Would you just slip up your hand and say, I, I, I need to embrace that more than that baby in the manger, yes. I need to embrace that Savior, that Lord on the cross. He said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we just acknowledge that we've sinned and believe that He died for us and was raised in the newness of life and confess Him with our mouth, whoever calls on Him shall be saved. So right there where you raised your hand, just call on the name of Jesus. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I embrace you as the Redeemer and the light and the truth and the way and the life. Wash my sins by your blood. Come into my heart by faith. I make you my Lord and my Savior. I receive you right now. And if you're here and you've scooted across the sea this first Sunday of Advent, is a time to put away all the cares, the distractions, the deceitfulness of riches, everything that encumbers you, and to scoot back. Remember, repent, redo your relationship.
Father, bless your people this morning. Focus our eyes upon you. Get our eyes off the trappings and the wrappings. And bring us back to the true meaning and the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. To our first love. So we'll be ready for your appearing. In Jesus' name. It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more Passion Church resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.